Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 16. This week, we talked to Robert Ivey, CEO of the American Institute of Architects, about the new I Look Up television ad campaign that kicked off a few days ago nationwide. We'll also be sharing our conversation with Jimenez Lai, founder of Bureau Spectacular, about his work, inspiration, and his latest project, Treatise, which recently opened as an exhibition in Chicago and will be launching as a publication next month. I'm Paul. And I'm here with Ken, Donna, and Amelia. How is it going, fellow co-hosts? Great. Going good. How's everybody's week? We're talking about weeks, right? We're talking about our, our lives? <laughs> yes, we are. It's, Whether you it's like been it or not. The votes are in. <laughs> yes. The yeah. votes are in. We got excellent feedback on the navel-gazing intro show we did. And thank you so much, everyone who gave us feedback. It really helps us, or me at least, enjoy doing this all the more when I know that people are out there and that they're enjoying it and learning things from it. So I'm just so pleased that we got so much feedback. So thank you, everyone. And, you know, I, I have no shame. I'll talk about anything at all. <laughs> Can I just read one portion of a quote? Yes, please. Go for it. From one of the reviews we got, which I actually really like, and it kind of ties into this weekend or this this podcast. This uh, The podcast has a very local, raw feel to it. Do not want a very impersonal, canned, NPR-feeling podcast. That's the type of bland style that would come from the AIA. <laughs> That's from Oshi. So, Oshi, kick ass, dude, or dudette. Thanks, Oshi. Fantastic. <laughs> kind of plays into what we're going to be talking about today, I think. <laughs> very appropriate. <laughs> so, my my week's been crazy. And uh, I can't really get too much into it, but it's been exciting and challenging and all those wonderful things. Now I'm looking at a project I worked on at the two firms ago, one I finished before I left, and I'm seeing the photos that I took of it after its construction. And man, they know how to screw things up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the problem with an architecture is that, you know, the bidders don't really look at the drawings very well. So what appears to have happened is that uh, when they finally realized that they had to build all these tiny little Lucabon panels, that they were going, this is going to kill us. We didn't include that much money in the budget for that. So they value engineered the facade that I had this Alucabon set up on, and they just did such a piss poor job of doing it. It just looks like a mess. That's too bad. So uh, they had this really nice kind of very nice scheme going and it. I'm looking at the photographs and yeah, if you can stay at your job long enough to see your project through the construction, do it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't leave. Yeah. That's where it rubber hits the road, as they say. Yeah. Is in the construction process. Yeah. Where I see like you know, so many of these projects that have lovely, you know, very sensual, curvy exteriors. And when you get in close and see these fat cock joints, it's like, oh man, someone just wasn't carrying through as well as they should have. Oh, that's too hard. That's too bad, Ken. Yeah. It looks really bland. When I went out there to see it, I'm like, something doesn't feel right. And I'm like, and sure enough, I went back to the drawings and I'm like, yeah, that, that was, that facade was much more intricate and much more interesting when I drew it up. And yeah, they just kind of went through and said, ah, we'll just have all this light gray and we'll have spots of uh, dark gray and some red and didn't even really look at the drawing. So it was, we could have done it. I, if I had been there, we could have done it in a way that it would have, you know, at least stayed with some measure of the original kind of idea, but would have simplified their process a little bit more. So oh, you need an architect. Everyone needs a good architect. Yes. 
an engaged <laughs> professional. <laughs> I just want to say I've been just working this week. It's been a busy week. I've got a lot of travel coming up. So I've been trying to get stuff accomplished before I leave town. But the threads in the forum this week have been really fun and funny. And, and I just love talking with architects. It's my favorite thing to do is talk about architecture with architects and talk about things that are not exactly architecture, but that we all can relate to. So there've been some threads this week. One, some poor gentleman posted pictures of his house and said, I'd like to have, or of his floor plans and said, can I get some professional opinions? here. And that thread is called Seeking Your Feedback on a New Floor Plan After Fire. It's a hilarious and fun thread in which there are, as typical for a lot of our Connect threads, you know, there's some very serious advice and discussion about very serious things. And then there's just some just laugh out loud, funny postings of GIFs or, or, or funny snarky comments. And there's a thread about that just today started up this morning. This is why we can't have nice things. That's a terrible builder house. And it's just hilarious. I love that we all understand each other when we talk about these things. And, you know, sometimes the Archonnect forums, I, I try to be somewhat professional on them, but sometimes they're just a place to go and bitch and complain. And, <laughs> and I enjoy that aspect of them. So I'll never stop. I'll never stop. That house that was posted in that was just, uh, wow. You know what it reminded me of? I remember a few years ago, I think it was someone in Russia built a, a full-scale replica of the Simpsons house. And it kind yes. of, in reality, it oh kind of looked like God. that house that this guy posted to the forum. <laughs> it I mean, did, it, was, it did. I was kind oh, of surprised man. to see that a lot of people weren't as shocked by the design as as I was suspecting everybody would be. Oh, that's just resignation. We know. <laughs> yeah. Aren't they in Eastern Europe? So isn't somebody over in Eastern Europe, they're building castles? Like these faux castles, like stucco castles? Wasn't yes, that? there was a thread on that not long ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. There was an article on it. I think a news article. It yeah. was, oh, they were they were painful to look at. <laughs> I think the one thread that's driving me up a wall is the, the one about best firms for women. I think I think a couple of people have gotten in there and they're really demonstrating their generational biases around women working in the profession. So it's difficult for me to understand how people can't see the issues around equal pay and consistently go back to these old tropes about, well, women get you know time off or for maternity leave, so they're not value. They don't have any value without understanding all of the dynamics that most women are the caregivers. Most women are the people taking care of the home. You know, you're only going to get a better workforce when you have a less stressed out workforce. And the notion of this old antiquated notion. I mean, my fiance works in works for the county, and she has a, a system. It's called a results only work environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not based on that the amount of time you put in. It's based on the results that you get. So you can put in whatever time you need to get the project done. And I think we need to kind of come around to the idea that we don't need to be working 40 hours a week in order to kind of show results. What if we could do the job in 20? Should we get paid less because we put less time in? But we demonstrated that we got the same results if we spent 40 hours looking at the same stupid wall section if we could do it in 20. I mean, there's just notions that need to change and evolve. And I see that thread that just I can't. It's not a thread that you can have a typing discussion about. It's like it just it fundamentally needs to be in kind of face to face ongoing conversation. And, and the thread doesn't make the best use of that. I recently listened to a podcast about this interview with the trust engineers for Facebook. Paul, oh, that was I listened to that this morning when yeah, I, on my hike. It's a pretty I mean, they're no longer called trust engineers because this whole scenario was wrought out of the emotional experimentation. This but the new name for that team is even scarier. What is it? Remind me. It was oh, like something super what, generic. It was like Department of, of happiness. Like happiness and Peace or something. <laughs> like it, was, it, was, it sounded like 
something out of North Korea or something. I mean, it was, <laughs> oh, uh, but that, that episode was, was fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. It, Ken, I brought it up because it's all about trying to imbue this social awareness and social etiquette through specific language without speaking, without exchanging social interactions between present people, but instead having this whole Facebook is effectively its own like nascent social society. You know, it's like most of the world is on Facebook. There the are the same number of people on Facebook as there are Roman Catholics. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. That was a great fact. Actually, not, not, not Roman Catholics, just, just ca- Catholics. Catholics. Yeah. And, you know, people who all around the world use Facebook, but say they don't use the internet. They just think of Facebook as this uh. core existence thing. And so, you know, that's something you buy into whenever you're involved in a internet community where you're online with people who you've gotten to know through their text only and you can't read their facial expressions or their blinks or their gestures or whatever to try to understand how they're saying. And quickly when people can't humanize you, can't be humanized or humanize other people like that, then you get into some pretty gnarly stuff. But that thread was also just depressing for the original poster because that poor woman is not (laughs) getting any information about who might be a little bit sympathetic to her cause. So I liked Louis C.K.'s clip that they played. Yeah. That was, I can't remember which one it was. He spoke about how, you know, kids, when they, they're constantly testing out and experimenting with communication, they'll go up to a kid and say, you know, you're fat. And then (laughs) they'll see the kid, you know, cry and they'll, they'll feel bad and see the the results of it. But then they can go on Facebook and call a kid fat and then, you know, just sit back and be like, that felt good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I do remember him that Louis C.K. bit actually now. Oh man. Well, but see, that's, I mean, I feel like I have learned how to be on the internet through Archonnect in a lot of ways. And so I have fights with some people sometimes, and I have people that I ended up meeting in real life, a lot of them. And, you know, it totally has been a society for me. Absolutely. Well, honestly, I think you've mastered the art of talking with architects online because I I don't think I've ever come across anybody that can so gracefully deal with trolls and uh, reasonable people equally um, pleasantly. And it's, uh, it's quite a skill that you have. Thank you. That's nice to hear. I try. I don't try. You use punctuation too, Donna. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely (laughs) a punctuation and capitalization fiend. What were you going to say, Ken? (laughs) I I was going to say, I don't try. That's mostly why I stick. Because I think, you know, I think people get a sense of me that's not, I don't know. I mean, I think people would have a sense of me as being very angry and not being very constructive. And, And around certain things, I'm really not very helpful. But I think people might be surprised if I said who I was and, you know, that they might have a different perspective because I am a shit stirrer sometimes. <laughs> and there was times, you know, there was times where you have to be the shiny, uh, you almost feel like you want to be the shiny object in the room so you can kind of distract. People were trying to have a discussion and you get these people who come in there and just kind of blow the shit up. And you want to be the shiny object that they are the attractor. And then so that way people can have a discussion. <laughs> and you hate to feel like that's like some fulfills some kind of need because I don't even care a lot of times when people, you know, and it's just you want to have a site where you can go and people can have really good discussions and have fun. And and sometimes people just come in there and shut it down. So it's just strange. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, speaking about internet culture and podcasts, I heard another podcast recently that you probably also heard, uh, Amelia, and they were talking about how kids these days are moving away from anonymous discussions. Kids these days. Kids these days. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard this. This question. Those darn kids. Yeah, no, there's a, there's, there's a movement away from anonymity with online and, and uh, I don't know. I mean, you can tell us, Amelia, you're still oh, kind of a kid. Thank God. I was waiting. I was just silently <laughs> waiting as a member of this, of this community to speak to my digital nativeness. 
um, which I guess I'm technically not, but um, I still have, actually, I was rehashing with some friends yesterday about our first memories of the internet that has very much to do with this concept of being online and being a social person online and trying to navigate being a, a real person, but also realizing you don't have to be the real person that you are in reality um, to be a person online. Uh, <laughs> but the anonymity thing, that's very interesting. And I've never, I haven't, I, I don't know what kids these days must be up to. It was New Tech City. There was mm. an episode where Manoush Zimarodi uh, <laughs> was following a, a, uh, a junior high school girl, I think. And they were talking about the different apps they use to have like massive group chats and all this stuff. And, and, uh, one of the, one of the things they found is that anonymity is, is kind of becoming less, less popular. It's becoming less popular on, on Arconnect too. A couple of people have, um, started using their real names lately. Well, you know, I think that might be due to people are getting used to that because a lot of websites are now requiring that you log in through Facebook or some other social network that you're forced to reveal your real identity. And maybe maybe people are starting to become more conscious of, of their behavior online so that they, they're not afraid to be themselves. So that's my take on it. You know, being non-anonymous means I try to keep myself constructive and not be a jerk. I'm still yeah. a jerk every now and then. <laughs> but I, <laughs> not, I also, I, I definitely see the value of being anonymous. I know I've gone to discussion forums on sites that are about a very specific topic and I'll just, I'm not going to put my real name just if I want to post a few, a few questions yeah. or comments. I don't necessarily want that burned into the internet for eternity. So there, there is a value to anonymity, but it also comes with, with a lot of negative power. So you guys ready to move on to our talk with Robert Ivey? We, we were lucky enough to catch him during a very busy day the other day while he was in California in meetings. And he actually stepped out of a meeting to, uh, to join us on the phone to talk about this new ad campaign. Yeah, let's talk with Robert. And then we have some comments about the ad campaign afterwards that I think our listeners will want to hear too. So stick around. Hi, Robert. This is uh, Ken Kunze. I'm an architect here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hi, Ken. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. I was listening to some of the podcasts that you've done with other groups today. And one of the, the, the phrases that struck me, and I was wondering if you could expand on it a little bit, was you talked about influencers and in, in looking and hearing you talk about where your media campaign and the ad buys are going, primarily to news organizations and cable news channels and PGA tour events, could you expand a little bit more about on the idea, who are the influences in those particular demographics that you're trying to hit? Sure. Influences is a broad term. We are trying to reach for all architects people that can affect the work that they do, can employ them perhaps, uh, but also may be users of the spaces and may have some voice in the places become. So it might in fact be the very explicit influencer that might be your client. For instance, uh, somebody that has a business or uh, is an officer in the corporation. That's the obvious one. The less obvious ones though are, let's say, the educated consumer who serves on a planning commission or might work on a school board as a volunteer or uh, might literally be a member of a neighborhood association. Those people watch frequently news services and can make a difference if they are better educated about the value of what architects uh, and architects can do for them. But it also might be someone who is uh, designing a new home or doing a renovation job. It may run the gamut from the smallest project of renovation up to literally master planning an entire 
precinct or district. Hi, Robert. This is Amelia. Um, so I'm wondering specifically about how the overall strategy for this three-year campaign, because all we've seen is this one television commercial, that, which is now airing, correct? It's, it just started airing on Monday, today? started on Sunday, yes. On Sunday. It started on Sunday with the uh, talk shows, and it now moves to CNN, CNBC, and Fox News. And uh, But also... It's different. It's an integrated campaign. And in this sense, it's really historic, I think, for our association. And it's unusual among other professional societies because it involves not just social media, which it began with on in December, but it also includes paid television advertising. It will include targeted marketing, and it will also include print advertising. And it's going to extend not just through the single ad, which only has, I think, uh, to, to answer your question, uh, I think an initial and obvious role, and that is to raise consciousness. But over the long haul, we hope to share the value of architects and architecture in more explicit ways. There are a number of suggestions that have been made yet, but we're not ready to talk about what those subsequent advertisements themselves are going to be. But suffice it to say that I think they'll be more pragmatic. They'll talk more about what architects do and less uh, as consciousness-raising vehicles. Mm -hmm. The first really has a simple goal, and that is if people have read a great deal into it, and I think probably more than was intended. It, its intention <laughs> is to remind people that when they are on their handhelds to look up and realize that the entire built world that you're confronting every day was made by people, was made by clients, was made by some professionals. And in almost every case, in an urban setting, that person was with an architect. Not an architect who was a hero, but an architect who worked with them to solve problems, to work things out, to envision what a place might be, but also to bring value to something that was not there before. That's what architects do every day. So we're excited to be able to share that message with people. And it's going to happen over time. And I would say we're all going to watch it unfold. Well, so if, if I can just interject. Too much, but we're going to measure it as it, as it occurs over time. Right. I, I think we're also interested in the three-year span because we're trying to gauge exactly how this commercial and extended media will factor into the larger strategy. But I wanted to refer back to the first interview that Ken also was referring to, the Business of Architecture podcast, where not just the mention of influencers, but you also referred to particularly the younger generation. So I'm quoting you as saying, engage the ethos of a younger generation was one of the efforts of this campaign. So can you explain both who you're referring to in that younger generation and what that ethos is and how the campaign addresses that ethos? Yes, obviously, the younger generation, in this case, refers to both architects and their clients, but there's a discernible interest by a younger generation of architects to be engaged in both collaborative efforts. So I think you'll see in the advertisements that people, uh, even though uh, we've shown some individuals, over the course of time, you'll see people talking together and making decisions. It sounds simplistic, but it is meaningful. We don't do things in isolation. The second is that we work toward valuable goals. And so one of the messages in the social media campaign is that we look for limits and we try to find solutions, but we're, we're going to be showing over a period of time how that plays out toward a social agenda. The next advertisements that you see will include some a very explicit, directed ad. And, and frankly, as I'm sitting and talking to you, I don't know what media this is going to play out in, but it will have a specific purpose of uh, social action and uh, public interest design. 
So we're taking these issues seriously and going to incorporate them into the total media campaign. It's not all about, let's say, uh, designing the next corporate headquarters for a big building. That's not the case, nor is it about one person solving every problem. It's going to talk about how people work and what they work for. And uh, younger architects are interested in social impact design. They're also interested in working with each other and working towards something that they care about. So, Robert, this is Donna Sink, and we were at the Emerging Professionals Summit last year, so I'm really glad you touched on this notion of civic impact and and social design and the the sort of things that seems like younger architects are interested in. Did the Emerging Professionals have any input? Did you have a creative team working on this campaign that included some Emerging Professionals at this point, or are you planning on that for later? Because I know you mentioned younger filmmakers and et cetera later. Yes. Well, actually, a variety of people have been involved in this. This was not a closely held effort to the extent that, obviously, there were were, you know, there were staff members and there were consultants that came into play. But this was discussed with a variety of people, including a communications group that had people from all demographics, I guess you would say, all ages and, and types uh, throughout the organization who had some input into what the program would consist of. And that will continue to be true. One of the things that, too, that, that I think is worth noting, Donna, is that the social media that we launched with was intentional because social media in its own way is really sort of a response mechanism or a focus group. So you hear things from people. People wrote us. They said things. They tweeted. They wrote on Facebook. They gave us points of view. And frankly, we changed the uh, advertisement on television as a direct result, uh, in part, of what we heard through social media. And we'll continue to do that. I mean, we're listening, trying to listen and, and, and hear what people's points of view are and incorporate them where we think that uh, it makes a difference. Hi, Robert. This is Paul. I was wondering, considering selling an industry to the public is is very different than selling a commercial product or a commercial service, which is what we're used to seeing on television. Did you look at any other industries and how they have possibly engaged with the public through this type of marketing campaign? Uh, let me tell you about who we're working with here. We've got um, a wonderful group called the Purpose Institute, and it's headed by several individuals from Austin, Texas, who are legends within advertising and public relations. The principals in this organization have been extraordinarily effective with the commercial enterprises that they've worked with, but also with the nonprofit. Uh, arena. We looked at many, many examples of other types of campaigns, but they themselves have been party to those campaigns, uh, you know, with their own work. The Purpose Institute that they set up is specifically for projects of this type, and it's unusual. An advertising and public relations company and the principals of that company set up a separate organization to help with, in, in their world, we're small potatoes, but to help with projects that are worthwhile, that have a purpose. And in this case, the principles of the advertising organization felt that architecture could change the world for the better. And so they essentially invested in us and we in them. And they're behind the campaign. They're the the real, it's the real brain trust behind the campaign. And then they brought in other groups that actually worked on it. So long answer, but your question, the answer, of course, is yes. And, but more than that, I mean, it it really is uh, 
it's a special group of people who are working on it together to uh, bring it out. So they brought in the PR group GSD&M, who I believe was also helped create the ad? That's correct. And did you have any oversight as to what type of, um, did you work with GSD&M in particular to decide what kind of tone the ad would have? Because based on what I've seen of the other people that GSD&M have worked with, there are these other large corporate entities that, like Paul alluded to, maybe have more of a commercial edge than um, simply the profession of architecture. Well, that's true and not exactly accurate because uh, the Purpose Institute, which is founded by members of GSD&M, had representatives from GSD&M, but they also brought in a young filmmaking group. They brought in a young production company. And so it wasn't GSD&M corporate that made this video. It was the principals of GSD&M who are operating through this Purpose Institute. And they've done numerous nonprofit videos that have, you know, they've been very, very successful on their own merits. So it was a, a combined effort of the companies that they put together through the Purpose Institute to do the work. And, the, and I might point this out, too. This is so interesting because this is not an advertising campaign made for architects. It's made to attract the attention of their clients. And this is part of, the, I think, the real distinction that uh, is worth elaborating. The educated public, according to the people that know advertising, does not respond in the same way that we do. We might want to sell our services to the public and tell and explain how we work for their benefit. We had done original research back two years ago when we began the repositioning effort, and that's what our architects wanted to sell. They wanted us to explain to people how we do things and how we make a difference in their lives and by being responsible and problem solving and so forth. This is the sort of the message that we're taught in school, and it's the message that we understand as architects. That's not the message that our clients are looking for. They're looking for something entirely different, qualities that we bring to them that they then benefit from our problem-solving skills that we have and other things. They look to architects primarily the, the single most important quality that they identified in this exhaustive research that was done is vision. This is the element that clients look for because architects are trained in design to look at something in three or four dimensions. The ordinary educated consumer cannot do that. They cannot see. We're not talking about aesthetics here. We're talking about the ability to take complex issues and synthesize them. And it may not result in a building, but it's a new way of looking and understanding things. And the quality that they described is vision. The advertising agency understood this, and so the ads are crafted not for architects. This is not to make us feel good or to hit our buttons. <laughs> Far from it. It's meant to gain and garner the attention of people who admire, our, and that's the rest of the world, other than our community, who admire us for qualities that we rarely talk about in public. We don't say this is part of who we are. But the vision will attract the attention of the clients, and then the work that we do fulfills the needs of the clients. But they are, first of all, not looking to have a problem solved. That's often what architects say that they're interested in doing. We are problem solvers. That used to be the first uh, in a PowerPoint. And that's not necessarily what people are looking for when they go to hire an architect. So it's an interesting, actually, fact that we learned in the process of going through what we've done. Robert, you know, I think perhaps one criticism I may have, and I'm all for the 
organization, which I plan to join, rejoin uh, very soon, has is that in the past, the first advertising I remember the AIA did a few years ago, maybe five, maybe eight, 10 years ago, I'm not quite sure of the timeline. It really talked about hiring an AIA architect. And I think a lot of people who aren't AIA really took offense to that because it, it made it seem as though, you know, if you didn't hire, that an AIA architect was the only kind of architect that existed. So what I hear you talking about, and not here, but on uh, other podcasts, about the many scales that architects work at. And then when a campaign like this comes out and it seems to focus in terms of scale, when you look at the scale of the campaign, its primary focus is on a media and a medium that is essentially not really reaching to the younger professional who doesn't consume commercial TV anymore. And I kind of wonder, it seems like the AIA has kind of put all their chips in the commercial side of the things and is kind of put social media as kind of the crumbs that are kind of left to, you know, not really put any emphasis on. So I wonder, how is this scalable as a campaign to reach all levels of architects, not just architects, like you said, it's not about architects, but to have some resonance with the architects who deal with like you said before, bathroom remodels or an addition on a house or designing, you know, large buildings. How do you meet those levels of scale with an, a campaign that's so primarily focused on this kind of high dollar advertising campaign? Well, first, let's say that the proof in the campaign will take place over time. So the three year effort here, I think it's important to understand that over the course of three years, there will be many messages shared. And as I said, I think the second set of ads, the second flight of ads that goes out will involve social impact design. It began with social media. We had a robust dialogue through social media at its beginning, at its genesis. And there is no explicit, I think, or implied desire to have this appeal to any specific scale of work. I think the proof in that, though, as I say, will come as the campaign unfolds and people see different kinds of projects and different uses that architects make. Here's the other message that I think that is important for all of us from our own perspective, and that is we have not had these tools in many years available to us. This is one thing an organization, a national organization, can do. It can garner the resources and put them out there for your benefit. So if you do a different kind of project from what you see described, nevertheless, that's a great opportunity for you to have a conversation with someone. You can say, you know, those ads that I saw, if someone mentions to you, unsolicited, I saw ads that had architects in them. You can say, yes, I do. But, you know, I actually work at a radically different scale than that. I work at the residential scale or I work on small scale local libraries or I work in a collaborative. It's an opportunity for a thoughtful architect to take the tool and use it. Here's a group, us, we architects, and laying it out there for the public. The public will be intrigued over this over the course of time. They're going to ask us questions. They're going to talk to us. They're going to meet us. You're going to see them wherever you are. And because it's going to be so broadly disseminated, we are reaching millions and millions of people that we were not able to do before. So here's your chance. Go have a conversation with them. Talk about how your work is different. Talk about how the impact that you're having or that your, your group is having, or that, your, that your friends are having. We've been marginalized in contemporary culture. We have chosen to sit, we have self-selected to remove or isolate ourselves from the larger debate. This campaign is not 
please us. This campaign is meant to reach the person it would not normally reach, and that is the potential client. That client is going to be reached through major media. It's going to be reached through social media, and it's going to be reached through print advertising and through direct marketing, a variety of means. Use the tools as a tool to describe what, what architecture means to you. How wonderful. I wish I had had such a tool available to me when I was in practice. We didn't have such a thing. But um, look, and, look and see what it offers. Look up from your handheld device and realize that every project on every major street in your community had architectural engagement of whatever scale, whether it's a, a bus stop or, or the hospital. We were involved in all those things. We've made, essentially, with our clients and our communities, the built world as we know it and enjoy it. And we have the wonderful privilege of being able to share that with this well right. So let's assume our rightful role. Let's stand up. Let's say, I, I took part in that. And I think if we lean in together, essentially, and say, you know, I, I saw those ads and I like what I, the large structures that I saw there, but you know, I don't work at that scale. I work for you, friend or neighbor or whoever you might be. And I, I do everything from remodeling of, of houses to, you know, whatever it happens to be that you do. I see it as a chance. And we haven't had that chance. And I think it, it gives us an opportunity to reach out, discuss, share, ultimately raise our value and relevance. Those are the two qualities that the architectural community has asked for. We did all this research several years ago, and those are the two qualities that we're, we're being asked to help with. What is our value? What is our relevance? We as a community have felt that we're not fully understood. So here's a chance to share it. Be an advocate for architecture. And through that process, yes, AI will benefit, but that's not the goal. The goal here is architect and architecture. And that's the way it's expressed. It's clear. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule today to share some insight into the campaign. We were really excited about uh, watching it unfold, and we hope it's a huge success. I am so glad. And I thank you all for taking the time with me. And I'm delighted to hear that one of you is going to join the AA. So come on down. And we'll, <laughs> well, we, uh, we hope we've got that we, good work to do. We're all planning on going to the convention. So hopefully we'll run into you there. So I would love to see the AIA push the envelope and do something innovative with this campaign. I just think that to make an impact in our current media landscape requires a much smarter and more original approach than it did five or 10 years ago. So I hope the AIA comes across as relevant to our current culture. That's a great point. I think, you know, and I referenced the previous campaign, it was really, it struck a lot of non-AIA architects as pretty, you know, like, wow, there's... 105,000 architects and 85,000 are in the profession. So you did a good job of covering 85,000 members in, in the membership, but and you did a good job of covering that, but you also undercut a good number of architects who aren't able to afford the profession. And the perception was always that, well, the perception that was that the ads left were, if you're not an AIA, you're not a licensed architect. I mean, that was the immediate perception I think a lot of people had. If you're not AIA, that you're not really an architect. So that was a good way to try to, maybe that was a, a backhanded way of trying to drive membership numbers up. But, you know, you hope that this campaign is going to do a better job than that. 
Yeah, you know, it never really hit me until on an Arcanact discussion, maybe, you know, 10 years ago, someone noted that in if you're a doctor, you put MD after your name. But if you're an architect, you put AIA because that's just become the tradition. And that really seems to imply most people think that if you don't have AIA after your name, you're not an architect. And I really find that problematic. I wish we had a way of being just RA being the designation registered architect. But I mean, I that said, I, I'm you know, I'm a supporter of the AIA. I'm a member of the AIA. I'm an active member. I serve on a board. I mean, I think the, the criticism of the AIA is very, I think, accurate in a lot of ways. But when it's a volunteer organization, you're frequently saying, well, you know, if you want to change things, get in there and do it yourself, which is not directly related to this ad campaign. I think the ad campaign is very lovely. I think it's beautiful. I love the notion of I look up. But I do agree, Paul, with your comment that it seems maybe a little not super cutting edge, if to be delicate. It seems a little boilerplate, you know, TV advertisement. But, you know, as Robert has mentioned many times, this is just the beginning of a three-year campaign. So I don't know if they have the rest of the campaign already planned, or maybe they'll they'll see how what the response is to this initial push and adapt it. So, but it would be nice to see some some kind of innovative approaches to engagement and and marketing. The the thing, you know, usually when you do a survey of your membership, you put out a response to the survey. You say, "This is what we heard you say to us." So, this is our response to what you said to us. And other than him saying that he's heard from a lot of members that we don't do and he's heard it for years that we don't do a good enough job of advertising what it is we do, this seems to miss if we don't do enough good enough job of advertising what our value is to the public, then how is this kind of very kind of Cialis or Viagra-esque, you know, whatever, just it's just this kind of very glossy narrative that doesn't really get at what people have been saying, which it doesn't really get at what value is that the profession brings to everybody. And I think the structural problems need to be fixed before you can kind of bring value or demonstrate value if you can't even get your own house in order, you know, if it's around um, diversity issues, if it's around um, women in the workplace, if we can't, if we can't even meet those basic needs and how we deal with interns and how we make sure that they become licensed architects, if we can't deal with those things, then the ad campaign is only going to reach those who they put the ad in front of. And clearly, those people, those stakeholders, despite what Robert said, the influencers are not this large group of people. I mean, those people already know the value of architects. They have to deal with them on a daily basis. School boards deal with architects. Um, CEOs deal with architects. They already know what our, the intrinsic value is of our profession to their need. So you can't put an ad on the PGA and expect to get the housewife to give a whole lot of crap about it. Maybe if you put it in front of NASCAR, maybe you got in the Daytona 500, maybe you got something going. But it, you have to get it to Joe's six-pack because the 10% of the built environment is handled by architects. And that, to me, leaves a whole lot of people out there who aren't the influencers, as he's described, and that could be benefited from our expertise. And I think this ad misses that. I think you're absolutely right, Ken, that, you know, un unless we get people who just would never consider hiring an architect to think about how the world is better when an architect is involved... I totally agree with you on that. And, and I don't think this ad shows that. I think it starts at least to break down the image of Howard Rourke, you know, the single guy, white male standing in his big open studio dressed all in black, dreaming up this idea, you know, Mike Brady, 
maybe. Dreaming up this idea and then putting it out there in the world. I think it starts to get more towards, it's a collaborative effort, it's listening, it's taking inspiration from all kinds of things, human, natural, etc. You know, I think it starts to maybe get to some of that in a way that's helpful. But I agree that it, it's not groundbreaking at all. And it does not go to how little things or the regular architect can make your life, your built environment experience better. I do just want to go back, though, to your comment about young architects and racial diversity and everything, which again, we're way behind on that. But the AIA is really actively working, working with NCARB, working with NAAB, trying to address some of these bigger things. I mean, I think the AIA is really about changing things right now. So I feel optimistic that there's a multi-pronged approach here. Yeah, I think that AIA have certainly embroiled themselves in a really tricky issue. They have a huge difference between the group they're supposedly trying to represent and the group they're trying to change the idea of those they're representing of. So it's like they want to appeal to the people who are going to hire architects and make them think architects are worthwhile, but they also have to represent the job of the architect in a way that architects aren't pissed off by, and they also are willing to be seen as that towards future clients. And that gets super tricky when you also try to factor in the whole youthful audience or like the youthful ethos that Robert referred to, which isn't the ethos that the people who are most likely doing most of the hiring and doing getting like the clients aren't going to be adopting that necessarily. However, it is how you would make a successful ad campaign. You do have to understand that. So that, that kind of weird disconnect between the person and the profession and the personality being represented in the ad and the target audience of who the AA wants to be convinced by this ad is like a strange disconnect going on. And I got real I didn't watch the Super Bowl, but I got big vibes and big reminders of the uh, nationwide dead kid ad where (laughs) (laughs) not because the actual style of the ads or anything are similar at all or that there's there's no dead kids in the I Look Up campaign as far as I know, but that there's this thing being represented that has a kind of conceptual disconnect between its actual representation and what the audience it's supposed to be convincing it should believe. And it's like, well, if the kid ended up dead and does that mean that I need to buy insurance? Because they're selling me insurance to get the... So it's just this complete embroiling of strangeness. Maybe it was just a bad timing where the launch happened to happen when a lot of the media world is talking about the uh, Super Bowl ads and what they mean for social culture and such like that. Yeah. And speaking of targeted audience, Robert mentioned many times that this TV ad campaign was going to be getting air during cable news, golf matches. You know, obviously, I think it's really clear that they're trying to reach the executive level decision makers. So in that case, why don't they invest all this money in TV ad campaigns to a campaign that shows that hiring an architect is good for business and it's good for money and you will make more money and be more successful in business if you appreciate good design and good architecture, because that's been proven. Yeah, definitely. That's a really nice take on it. Yeah, I agree. And that came up in the, um, I don't forget who posted it, but that was in the, the discussion in the comments after we posted this original ad. I forget who said it exactly, but it came up that there are people who are investing in or businesses who do invest in architects and their design in order to get that return. And it does end up having returns. It has substantial returns. I don't, I forget exactly what the post was, but we'll, we'll make sure to link to that. You know, I'm going to join the AIA. I'm sorry, rejoin. I was a member and I don't. But will they, will they let you? I'm sure they will. They want my money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> write a check. Write a check. They'll let you in. Yeah, I'm going to write the check. And we're supposed to be partners in our own success. I think we should be seen as partners in our, in our success. So when you have a ton of membership saying, what are you doing? It clearly denotes to me that they didn't really engage in a way that made sense. I mean, 
again, I hate to go back and, and hit the social media crap again, but honestly, I mean, the way to do this is through activating the innate creativity that the membership has and even beyond the membership. And I'll give you a very clear example of this. When I was in the AIA, I was on the committee that created a, a video competition for architects. And it was for architects because it was during the downturn of the economy and there was, wasn't really anything going on. So we wanted to keep the membership, the young architects active. And I had been going to these events in the Twin Cities called um, MN Kino. It's a, basically you create a small, you create like an eight minute film and you show it. And I created one and, and I thought it was a great way to like activate you know, architects around talking about space through video. And I kind of dropped out of it after a while because they kind of wanted to open it up to not just architects. It became less about architects anymore. It became less about, you know, the, the profession being in a down. And they, but they opened it up to a much broader group of people and the creativity that has come to that. And it's been going on for like three or four years now. I mean, they could have easily leveraged the social media in that fashion to solicit ideas and not saying that they were going to steal ideas. Maybe that's part of the thing that they didn't want to do, but they surely could have put together an array of videos to kind of give people a sense who are putting the ultimate ad together. This is the AIA, not a bunch of white guys sitting in a boardroom saying, this is cool for my son. I mean, you know, it comes off very paternalistic and like, this is what we think you need. And I don't want to be, I want to always look back behind me to see the profession coming up behind me to bring the new ideas. I'm not afraid of the new ideas coming from someone 20 years younger than me. And it just seems like the AIA is very afraid of handing things over to the younger talent in the organization because they've been there so long. Well, you know who I think could have uh, lended some really great ideas to the AIA for their campaign? I haven't. I have. I think I know. I think I know. But go ahead. I think yeah. I do too. Jimenez lie. Yes. 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 I just recently saw a video that Amelia forwarded to me that was produced by Jimenez and I think Matt Mesner, and it was pretty great. Very Adult Swim. Oh yeah. Ish. Yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh uh, man, if AIA took out ads on Adult Swim, that we'd have a very different, very different campaign going on here. But uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to Jimenez. I mean, unfortunately, that I hadn't learned about that ad or that TV spot, or I don't even know what to refer to it as but before we talked to him. But Jimenez came into our studio and had a, we had a really great chat with him. That was like a, a week or so ago. So we're finally getting to it. Yeah. Glad to finally get it to air. We had the, the news of uh, Betsky's appointment last week that kind of pushed this one back because of the timeliness of, of that. But I've been really excited about this talk. Yeah, it was great to meet Jimenez and like just get him to freewheel on his projects. He's got a lot to talk about. So let's listen to it. All right. So yeah, we're here with Jimenez Lai. Hey, Hello. How are you doing? Not bad. How are you? So you're pretty new to LA. How's LA treating you so far? Pretty good. You know, I, I, there's really nothing you can complain about Los Angeles. I, I know people complain about traffic. But that's yeah. about it. I don't have a car. And, you know, I like it very much not having a car. We were, we were just talking about drinking. I think, you know, I would say as a responsible human being, I would choose one of the two. And I think I've made the right choice. It's it's the only 100% guarantee that you're not going to get a DUI in, no, in LA. Yeah. yeah. And you in, have to contribute to public transit. You are now paying money into the wonderful system that we have that is not really given the credit that it should be. The bus is really not that bad. Yeah, not that bad. That's the best <laughs> endorsement we can get. It, it, they actually provide some of the most interesting 
stories that you can come across. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's a really good way to get to know a city. And I've also been taking UberX. I don't know, like maybe we should, we could like dub out the brand <laughs> since we're not being sponsored, <laughs> but uh, no, but it's also a very good way to get to know the city, you know, because people are driving their own cars and, and you engage in conversations. Absolutely. So far I've gotten to know the city a little bit that way. You drive a lot, right? Because you're teaching in a bunch of places. You're all over the place. Tell us uh, where you're active in LA. Um, I'm most active in downtown LA. You know, I like downtown. It's kind of crappy and really cool at the same time. And so I currently live there and many of my friends are situated downtown. But I, I teach, I, now I teach teach at UCLA. So, I, you know, two or three times a week, I make it out west. UCLA must be in like the worst place in the entire city to be uh, without a car. I mean, it's just such a hard place to get to from anywhere in LA. Yeah, uh, which is why I take the 720. Or, yeah. yeah. Do you ever recognize other architects on the bus? No. <laughs> That's not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been nine years since we, uh, since we originally published the student works piece on you. How, how has that time in school influenced your work? As a uh, practitioner and a teacher. Yeah. We're closing in on 10, which is a decade, right? That, that's, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, so I'm about to go back to Toronto. They, they have this 125 year, you know, anniversary of the school and they're inviting some alum back to, to give a talk. And I'm going back to Toronto to give a talk, which I'm very excited about. In fact, I've been looking forward to it all year. It's, it's really special, I think, to go back to where you're from and, you know, um, in a way, it's almost like a report card kind of yeah. uh, to, to your community. And so at the time, 10 years ago, um, I think I, I started drawing those pages that eventually got published by Archonnect uh, roughly 10 years ago. I, I, I guess in the beginning, I was really interested in telling stories and drawing cartoons. I think ever since I was a little kid, I was just reading comics and watching cartoons and, you know, it, it came really intuitive to me to, to, you know, look at the composition of the page, look at the way that the characters are reacting to each other, we're reacting to the, the situations. Uh, the thing also about Japanese comics is that, you know, the manga artists have a pressure to produce every week. Uh, they have a pressure to produce every week because of the publication system out there. And, you know, so they have to squeeze a story into something like 20 pages uh, 20 to 30, depending on, you know, the length of your composition. So within, you know, the, the weekly publications, they would have to produce a story arc, even though this mini story arc contributes to a larger story arc. And so I, I was always really interested in that. And, and you know, being someone who likes movies, um, I, I would think about the story arc of other movies, such as, you know, like, for example, Rocky or, you know, um, at the time, I guess, when you think about the Hollywood formula, we, we know that we, we go from a flat line to somewhat of a peak, and then you would dip to a super low because I don't, you like lost your best friend or your girl or money, and, and then you end the movie with a peak. This kind of story arc sort of happens maybe weekly. So I know you were asking about architecture school, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm talking about earlier on when I was reading a lot of comics, I think, as a way of reflexing towards uh, how to make a board or how to tell a story through a, you know, plot. Where do you place your plans and sections and do they, would, would they contribute to the way that a page is being read? And so at the time, I, I think I, I responded that way. 
I would also maybe have to credit the um, first professor that allowed me to do stuff like this. Uh, I had Michael Meredith at the time, the principal of Moss, mm-hmm. because, you know, he wanted me to feel free and, and explore it. And so I, I, my, my gag reflex was drawing comics and, and that was okay. But I, I was, I was maybe, uh, you know, I remain very thankful that you guys published that strip about the spaceship story because it really gave me a head start as far as, you know, feeling validated, thinking that this is not stupid. Uh, because, you know, naturally I would think that's stupid. <laughs> School of architecture, why am I drawing comics? But uh, since it became clear and clear that I had resonance and I could talk to people about this, I felt better about doing more of it. And eventually there was that book that came out three years ago. And I think through this time after graduation, um, I was very also very lucky to have met some key individuals uh, who were invested in cartoons and architecture. I didn't know about the history of cartoons and architecture at the time when I was doing it 10 years ago. Uh, I think I got to know more about it after meeting individuals who, you know, spent a lot of time doing it. We were just talking about Stanley Tigerman. He had a book that was published called Architoons. He, he doodled a lot of cartoonish um, line, line works and very lucky I got to meet him. But I got to meet him largely through Bob Somo, who is the director at UIC and where I worked for seven years. I was working at UIC for seven years uh, teaching in Chicago. So this investment in cartoon and architecture, I think I found a cohort and, and a group of people who were all invested in uh, not just the story arc, not just the composition of the pages, but also the sensibility of the line work. So if a graphic designer is someone who you know manages the arc and color very well to a point where we can think about Mickey Mouse as being three circles or four circles where a few aggregations of circles and such management of arcs uh, could easily bring us to people like Fat, Sam Jacob and Chris Holland and uh, Sean Griffin that they just recently broke up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, in, in, in a roundabout way, I was in school and had the gag reflex of not knowing what to do compositions with besides comic books and did it and and the aftermath of it were, you know, was this really wonderful journey. Jimenez, I wanted to connect a little bit with the uh, the comic. I thought that was, when I first saw your work, I was immediately blown away. And I think the immediate connection for me was to, was to Archigram and thinking about how they, um, early on, were a lot of their work connected with the kind of superhero comic. But I just have a real quick question for you. You by any chance aren't Banksy, are you? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get that off your chest, Ken. <laughs> I had to. I had to. We don't ask was, every guest. There's like that. silence there for a moment, and I was like, ah. <laughs> um, no, I, there's you know there's a seriousness and a playfulness in your work that kind of reminds me of this you know like an architect's kind of um, alter ego that that you have when you approach your design and and your your connections to things that are either bodily or. Um, politically, and I was thinking about the the YouTube I did see when you were talking at the Swiss Pavilion, and one of the things that struck me, and I, I don't know if it was just me, but I, there was some small sense of irony in the fact that you were talking about how e- the Taiwanese Pavilion was an unofficial pavilion, and you talked about deliberately scattered, and I was like, well, that's interesting. I mean, here you are, here is your project. It's been deliberately scattered, but you the country exists, and here it is off-site, can't be part of the official event. But at the same time, I was thinking, is 
would it have been different? Would your project have been different had the pavilion been officially recognized by the Venice Biennale? I see. I, I think, well, I'll approach uh, this train of thought by responding to, you know, one's engagement to official where, you know, let's say, I don't know, I, I, I can think of being a licensed architect as being a part of this kind of conversation, maybe, or, you know, if we're going to think about archigram, they are the subculture of a larger culture of architecture, but there's a, maybe a sense of freedom in being in the, in the, in the subculture, uh, knowing that you're not official. And so maybe you're right in, in thinking that the work would have been the same or would not have been the same if it weren't, if it were an official in, you know, on-site uh, sort of pavilion. I mean, there, there was a lot of struggle there because, you know, we, we couldn't claim that we are. Uh, it's a very sensitive political to- topic. And I, I felt, you know, I definitely felt frustrated uh, that we couldn't do this. We couldn't say that we are a country. Could you just talk a little bit about the pavilion? Okay. I know that uh, the pavilion was was looking at how space could be reconsidered based on actual needs uh, yeah. rather than historical precedents. Is that a pretty well, accurate? Um, I think we the pavilion had maybe two two components to it. There was the architecture with the built work, and uh, but then there, there's a exhibition about the kind of investigation of Taiwanese competitions. You know, so we were looking at the. And this was not in the forefront of most of the publications we would have, we really wanted it to be, but uh, it took the form of a video and we had multiple interviews with people who were doing competitions in Taiwan. And also we got in touch with people who held competitions in Taiwan. And we, we really kind of investigated, you know, why it is that uh, there was such a emergence of high quality competitions over the last 10, 15 years, all in Taiwan. It was so there was that aspect of it where we got to have a conversation with Neil Denari, and Raisu Umemoto, Philippe Rom, and among others. And so that there was that aspect of the pavilion. And what came out of that? I mean, what are uh, what is what is the story behind competitions in Taiwan? Well, let's maybe talk about the. I mean, with, without getting without getting too specific, I'll, I'll say you know sometimes the mayors could be strong armed by local contractors into choosing architects that they don't really want to choose. And, you know, this is also partially because the contractors were the people who are in control of, you know, uh, an actual building uh, have a lot of power uh, in, you know, deciding who they want to work with. And this may or may not have a positive influence on, you know, the quality of work that gets constructed. And therefore, certain mayors or people in power in Taiwan would prefer to consult academics. As they consult academics, they'll find that, you know, there's a lot of interesting work to be done uh, elsewhere and where have been done elsewhere. And they, they could, you know, let's say, make the process a little cleaner by holding an international open competition to, to people. And this would, you know, help them make sure that the quality of work is at the standard that they want. And also it'll, let's say, free the handcuffs of being strong armed by contractors. So, um, you know, so I, I would say, you know, there are local academic personalities that had a huge influence on who gets picked, which is a really rare situation, I think, in, in any political landscape hmm. uh, that, you know, academics have more say than politicians or business people. Hmm. And so that's one of the findings, I think. Yeah. And but then the other aspect of the pavilion was the built work, uh, which was my initial proposal to the Ministry of Culture in Taipei. 
we were looking at domesticity as, as a kind of interior urbanism in which, you know, can we yeah, build nice super furnitures? Can we build nice super furnitures? And each one of the super furniture would be, you know, a single program house. And so if we took the house, uh, exploded it, and scattered them around the interior, you know, can we get a house of sleep, a house of shit, and so on and so forth? For those of you, or for those of the listeners that aren't familiar with super furnitures, can you describe what that is? Yeah, a building that's too small to be a building, but it's too big to be furniture. So somewhere between uh, bigger than a bread box and smaller than a building. Oh, there's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so back in 2009, or really this process started in 2008 when I moved to Chicago, I, I found a really big space. Chicago is really inexpensive when... For those of you who are, you know, wanting to be in a metropolis, but I mean, Jeff Kipnis had this amazing line. He said, Chicago, half the price, two thirds the culture. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a deal. <laughs> Very accountant of them. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I had this amazing space. It was really large. And um, so but I decided to build a house instead of this, you know, house. So I built this box, which you guys also published, uh, mm-hmm. the briefcase house. So I had my personal belongings. I put them into this box and outside of the box, I, I had, you know, my office. So, so that was the first time I started thinking about, you know, what super furniture is or could be. Because when I was having a, a drink with a friend, uh, he's here now too. His name is Andrew Kovacs. You know, we were chatting and, you know, at the time he was also in Chicago. We spent a lot of time together um, and he was like, do you think that's a building? And I said, I don't think so. I don't think that it's, that it's you know, bigger than furniture. And I, I think, you know, the idea of super furniture began to emerge. Um, and later when Wild Elf and uh, the other installation that we were developing, you know, when that fully emerged, I, I think I felt like I, I was able to write a little passage about it. I like the comment that you made in our recent, the recent feature we published that with Julia, Julia Ingalls yeah. about how the bathroom obviously uh, function as, functions as a bathroom, mm-hmm. as a waste uh, removal room, but it also provides this uh, secondary function of mm-hmm. a place of solitude mm-hmm. and escape. Yeah. And it seems like these super furnitures are offering that type of, that type of space and functionality that rooms in a typical house or t- typical building don't offer. So there is a very specific uh, agenda with, with those that seems to fit a, mm-hmm. a need. Yeah. Ken, did you have a question? Yeah. You know, Jimenez, I, I really, really appreciate it. All of the uh, the videos I've seen of you, you really talk a lot about Hayduck's influence on, on you as an, as an architect, as a young designer. One of the things I'm always interested in is, is this kind of reticence from the architecture community mm-hmm. at large to consider the idea of literature or fiction or narrative is an informing piece to the design process. And one of the things I think about, and I was just watching uh, Louis C.K., his TV show, and he talked about, you know, it almost didn't matter whether or not what he was telling you was truthful. It only mattered whether or not it was funny. And I wonder, you know, why is it there's this kind of religiosity around being truthful when it comes to architecture that like fiction or just storytelling is not seen as a, as a value or virtue when it comes to creating architecture. And, and one of the things I really embrace about your work is that you kind of, you seem to, um, it's not only you embrace it, it's like part of you, part of your being. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, uh, the name of my office, uh, Bureau Spectacular, and you would also know the acronym for the, for the, for the office. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which, uh, which, yeah. which is, you know, <laughs> deliberate. Uh, that is a deliberate choice. Yeah. I had the good fortunes of meeting Michael Speaks uh, at one point, and he, you know, uh, introduced me to this book on bullshit. It was written by Harry G. Frankfurt. And, you know, the central thesis of this book is about a slight distinction between lying and bullshitting. I mean, so in the book, he says, lying requires the truth. It acknowledges the truth and you would have to hide the truth. And because you know it exists, uh, bullshit, on the other hand, does not require it. Um, you sort of bluff it and perhaps you make it even as you bluff it. And in the case of architecture, you know, we, we get asked to say, here's a vacant lot, do something. Um, it's not there and you would have to make it up. And so I think I would say my relationship with that sort of problem is a kind of multiverse in a way that you could say, I'm going to imagine five different things and they could all be real in five different separate timelines of reality. And maybe they all happened, but we're we're not. Uh, It it just means that, you know, there is not one thing that's correct. And, And I think that's a healthy feeling that, you know, that it could be five or 10 different things. I think that's interesting when you do read these briefs or press releases regarding a new project where either the architect or whichever communication secretary wrote the copy says in utter certainty exactly what was proposed for the space and what has been executed in the space and how that's, as you're saying, complete bullshit. I mean, it's really just, it could be anything, but they've chosen what it needs to be. So it's it's not that there is a chosen truth. It's just, it is what they've chosen it to be. So- I wanted to bring that idea to your work with comics because the work with comics is inherently narrativistic. It's about making a story, but it's also about appealing to maybe a, or or maybe it's not about, but it has the impact of appealing to naturally, I feel a larger audience than the one that is otherwise just seeing the architectural press release or so. So it's kind of an, an, an avenue for more people to get that bullshit, but also enjoy it and not see it as bullshit. Um, so I want to kind of hear about how, how you constantly refer back to comics, if you do at all throughout conception and design and whether you feel it's an effective communications tool. Well, so yesterday at UCLA, there was, there was this lecture that I attended and I would say, I think it's maybe one of the, one of my favorite lectures I've ever been to. Uh, it was by a graphic designer, uh, group, a Dutch graphic designer group called Experimental Jet Set. So Experimental Jet Set was here um, at the invitation of Neil Neil Denari, and they were talking about, you know, what they do. And, you know, through the talk, they were citing, you know, references of uh, people that had huge influence and were influences on them. And one of which was a quote uh, from Godard, uh, where he says, I'm not interested in the representation of reality. I'm interested in the reality of representation, which I think is Okay, great. Let's think about that for a second. And I thought about that for a second. The reality of the representation means that there is a separate world in the film and in the film that's on. So the actors are no longer who they are. Uh, There is a, you know, universe behind those two hours. Uh, And so I'm interested in the reality of the representation. So say comic books is, you know, part of that and part of is it. I mean, maybe that's also why I'm far less interested in renderings, which is a representation of reality. And maybe that's also why I'm much interested in the the crappy, you know, a collage of things that are clearly really poorly done. And, you know, maybe that represents an attitude about not wanting to recreate reality or, you know, uh, pursue verisimilitude 
I think these are maybe ideas in cinema that I, I, I'm, you know, really drawn to. Like maybe I think about the montage or the diagrams of the montage from Sergei Eisenstein all the time, actually. So the strips of, you know, let's say film strip to the score, to the story arc, you know, the peaks and valleys of the story arc, all these things are composed into layers of the same page, which implies that there's a timeline from uh, from left to right. But at the same time, there's a, from up to down, there's a superimposition of types of representation that all exists. So is it a means of communication? Y- yes, it is. Um, but as a means of communication that, you know, implies more than, or insinuates more than what it tells you, uh, I'm, I'm, more, I'm interested in that aspect of comics, I think. So Jimenez, taking what you just said about representation and going all the way back to the beginning of our discussion about the um, Citizens of No Place comics that I love so much. And the thing I'm most drawn to in them is the line weight. Your your discipline with line weights is amazing. But how then you are building super furnitures, how does that tackling of a representation then translate into something that you're actually building? What have you learned from your line weights that you can apply then to actually building these pieces of cabinetry and and furniture, the materials? Um, I think that's a a good question. Okay. I've also used the word composition a couple of times. And if architecture is a whole made up of parts, which, you know, it is, even in monolithic architecture, I think it is uh, largely made of, we we could produce parts within the whole. So the outline that the envelope, uh, you know, produces is usually the thickest line that, you know, we would apply to in, in the world of line weight. To me, it really helps one, you know, understand uh, where does the canvas end or where is the edge of the figure. And, you know, if there is no idea about the outline, it could get kind of messy. And, and also, you know, like the composition gets endless, right? Um, and so, I mean, one of the train of thoughts I, I have constantly is also, let's say, if we compare Jackson Pollock to Frank Stella. Jackson Pollock is somebody that, you know, just let's say he in a very composed way, drizzles his patterns and, and a very consistent dense, at a very consistent density, which is impressive. But let's just say that the canvas goes on forever. May, will he do this forever? Or will he end at the edge of the canvas? Typically, he ends at the edge of the canvas, meaning, you know, his relationship with the canvas is a crop type of relationship. It also means that if we think about the work of Frank Stella, the canvases have shapes and the, it's, it's that relationship with the outside world is, I think, a little different. Say the edge of the canvas or the boundary of the canvas is the outline of architecture in that case, if we think of it that way. I would tend to want to stress that line or the thickness of that line um, as being, you know, the most dominant so that we, we could, you know, inscribe parts within the whole. But then again, like when you said I have very good control of line weight, I got like... <laughs> disciplined. You, your line weights are disciplined. I felt kind of bad because I don't, I don't think I do. No, you totally do. <laughs> but I, so maybe coming back to super furniture, I think, you know, like I belong to a generation of people who's made careers out of building installations. You know, I see my peers and I feel also the, the pressure and the need to also, you know, build um, maybe at scales that are not necessarily at architecture yet because we're a little too young to be trusted with millions of dollars. So, but then, you know, a, a lot of people that I, come out of in in terms of the generation, I would say some of my peers don't necessarily have to think about holes, but because, you know, these installations are parts. 
How important is it to you to um, apply your own hand to the fabrication of your of your built work? Um, not that important. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I think at the beginning, I, I did a lot of it myself. Uh, at the very beginning, um, you know, the, the first one here in LA back at the materials and applications, materials and applications. Uh, I definitely part- participated, and you know, even as far or as recently as. White elephant. I, I was participating in it, but you know, I realized I'm just not very good at it. I'm just. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's important that my hands on it, as far as my fingerprints are being discovered on it. Like. So how? <laughs> what is what is the relationship like then between? Um, because there's a translation that needs to happen from your drawings to the uh, built three dimensional mm-hmm. product. How do you work with fabricators and people that are that are taking your work and and making them, mm-hmm. you know, translating those those line weights into into uh, tangible product or materials? Early in my career, I also have to you know give a shout out to my friend Reeves Rash. Uh-huh. Reeves Rash. I don't know if you met this guy. Yeah, yeah. No, I went to Syrac with him. Oh, you did. Yeah. Okay. Is he still in Kentucky? He's he, he is in Kentucky. Yeah. 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 Um, he's very talented. Yeah. He's so great. He's a good wrestler too. Uh, I, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's funny. I know Reeves from Kentucky also, but I had no idea who was a wrestler. That might have just been a party. It might have been a party trick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so Reeves was helped you with your yeah, building. He did. He's, I, he's I was very lucky. You know, I met Reeves. We got off to a very good uh, start as far as our friendship goes. And um, we, I mean, as far as, you know, putting my own hands into it, when, when you put me next to Reeves Rash for fabrication, my skills are just pale compared to his and yeah it's not like finding somebody on craigslist to, no. to build your <laughs> no. so as far as translations go, i think you know at the beginning i didn't have to worry about it in fact i met somebody who was much much better than i am or or ever be really but recently i think you know for example the fabrication of the project in taiwan uh there was a gentleman his name is johnson Lail. he's based in taiwan uh he fabricated the pieces but you know we're now, I guess, entering a, a little different um, reality where we have to translate, where we have to, you know, communicate our intentions on, on paper. But we've also been working with fabricators that were trained architects. So this guy, Johnson, had a very good idea what we what we were after. And we're, we're also very lucky that we had him. And so who knows? We, haven't, we, we don't have anything lined up for projects right now. So I don't know what we'll do the next time, but... So far, we, we didn't really have to worry about that. So are you still going through in the concept of des- or in the process of designing? Do you go through like iterative models or is that something you rely upon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, we do. Like I was talking about earlier, the, the thought of multiverse, you know, something that I feel pretty liberated about. Like, I, I guess, you know, a while ago I was thinking we all have regrets, maybe. Maybe we, maybe we all have some regrets and... Uh, I was talking about this with another friend and we're talking about, let's let's say if there's a relationship between regrets and, you know, the fifth dimension and, you know, the first and second and third are the X, Y, and Z and the fourth dimension is time. Let's say, you know, the bifurcation of timeline happens when you have a fork in the road in front of you and you have to choose one because time will continue whether or not you choose one. And, you know, whichever one you choose, when should the event be that either side of the fork of the road uh, presents something that you want. And no matter what you choose, you're going to have some sense of regret. It means that, you know, the other side of the reality, the other side of the fork of the world, it happened in a different universe. And there, so there's another you out there doing that and that, and you're fine. And, you know, 
and so you could take one could take solace in the fact that that happened and there's no you know sense in regretting that so coming back to the idea of uh, iterative models and we let's say the moment when we design stuff we typically have lengthy conversations uh, in house with with my right now I have two people working uh, with me Jacob Comercy and Jesse Hammer we often sit down you know let's say draw out 20 different options and we i guess play out you know okay let's let's play this out if we do this what would happen in that world you know we what what are the pros and cons will we be happy we're upset and so typically that's how, that's our design process mm-hmm. i think uh, so I want to try to move the conversation a little bit into the form of research and also your recent work with Treatise. My personal interpretation of the super furniture is a form of basic research, kind of almost a theoretical, like you have a theory of a platonic ideal, perhaps, of a certain space or typology, and you're putting that theory to the test by extrapolating on the variable of scale, say. So is it still a bathroom when it's, say, the size of an apartment? Like, <laughs> does it provide the same function? Does it feel the same? Same goes with any, you know, a chair. Is it still a chair if you can't sit in it? So if you could talk a little bit about what treatise is and how that works into your format of uh, doing research and testing theories. Well, so I've always been really interested in pamphlet architecture. And, you know, we were looking at pamphlet architecture as a role model uh, in some ways. I mean, we know that it still exists and uh, we have still maintained the utmost respect towards, you know, the people who do it and it's great. But we were also, I guess, you know, playing out charting out the first, I mean, from the first issue towards now, like we made a rough diagram of, you know, uh, the personalities involved. And so what we identified was that in the first 14 to 15 issues up until 1995, which was uh, the issue, the last issue of Libya's Wood, I think, you know, prior to that, uh, there was something really sloppy about each issue, but something sloppy and brilliant. So, for example, Lars Lerup did one, you know, Stephen Hall did a few, Zaha had one. I mean, so there, there's also the idea that people who do it may or may not come out uh, being great architects. And there there are some really fantastic issues uh, that were done by people who later we, we don't hear about. But at the same time, we were drawn to that quality. I think something else happened towards on the latter end of 1995. And maybe it was through institutionalization of pamphlet architecture, the nature of it felt a little different past that point. But we wanted to think about, you know, our generation as far as the the sloppy and the stupid. And, you know, can we feel that sense of freedom when it comes to wanting to put down on paper, either through writing or drawing, what is it that, what is the motivation? What is the reason of this pursuit? Clearly it's not money. And so if it's, if it's not that, uh, it's so much a stake that you're putting yourself at risk and do experimental architecture whatever that means, you know? So I'm drawn to that. And I, I know that I make friends who do that. And we're thinking, well, maybe it's possible to do a run of 15, 20 issues or so of a new publication in the spirit of the crappy pamphlet. So that was the premise you pitched to the Graham Foundation yeah. on Treatise and they were they were down? That's fantastic. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. So, uh, what were some of the other collaborators with Treatise? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to talk about them because, you know, some of the selection process is really based on jealousy. A, a lot of them are just <laughs> such, such talented people. I wish I were you know, half as talented as, as they are. So, for example, you know, I was mentioning Andrew Kovacs. I was also talking about... Uh, you know, Thomas Kelly. I don't know if I talked about Thomas Kelly. He's a massively talented individual and with his partner, Carrie Norman. And, you know, or speedism. 
Speedism is, is somebody, Peter Jan Hinkles of Speedism is somebody that, you know, I'm, let's say I'm, if I were a student, I, I would try so hard to take a class with him because I'm so jealous of how good he is. And so I would say that's part of the selection process. I, I was looking through people that I admire and I want to invite them to do something. And there are people that I extend invitations to, towards they couldn't accept um, for various reasons. And eventually this is the list that we have. And so the full title is Treatise, Why Write Alone? That's right. And I think the title was a little longer in your proposal to Graham Foundation. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, the grant that I wrote initially was titled Gangs, Summits, and Manifestos. Really thinking about gangs, summits, and let's say manifesto is really the part about pamphlet summits. Uh, we're thinking about Charlottesville tapes. Uh, it's something that Chicago tapes where, let's say, important moments where people get together and very decisive remarks are made either in hostility or friendship. Uh, I think, you know, we, we will find that in the uh, transcripts of Charlottesville tapes summit and gangs and, you know, thinking about groups of people that are lumped together as, as a generation. So for example, the New York five or, you know, Chicago seven, or we, we can go on there. There are lots of people we can, Texas Rangers, for example. And so when I wrote that, I was I, I had these things in mind, and I had a conversation with Sarah Herda, uh, the director of Grand Foundation. And prior to writing this grant, she insinuated that people no longer have motivations to do something great, and I felt like it was a uh, moment where she she kind of shook me out of apathy. I was thinking, well, let's let's, let's do something great. Let's, let's do something great again. We were talking about Stanley Tigerman, and you know, Stanley was somebody who would say in an uncompromising way, he wanted to bring together his generation and he did it. He did. I heard the opening last week in Chicago was the event to be at. How, how did that go? <laughs> um, well, Peter Jan Hinkle set off the fire alarm and so the uh, marshals came and success. Yes, yeah, major success. <laughs> they all started wouldn't dancing. wouldn't be a party if, you know, a fire truck wouldn't show up. So, um, Stan- Stanley closed the party. He, he was there till the end. Um, no, it was great. It was really fun. We wish that our other collaborators could have made it. So maybe it's fair to go through more people out of this list of, uh, you know, group. Uh, so for example, some of the people that I invited, invited included this gentleman, uh, Michael Young, Young and Ayata, uh, his partner, Kutan. Michael is somebody who's philosophically inclined. And every time he speaks, you know, I'm just captivated. And let's, let's talk about jealousy, right? I, I kind of wish I, I had that capability and so when he talks about realism, it's an actual discourse in philosophy. And he's also had, I think, an influence on his peers. And so this is also why I wanted to invite him. And there's another person, um, Michael Leverich, Bitter Tank. You know, uh, or, you know, Ertzi and Christina, Ertzi Grau and Christina Goberna from Fake Industries. These are some of the people that I also want, I also did invite. When you look across the, let's say, core sample or the, the ice sample of, you know, who these people are and why are they together and almost wouldn't make sense because, for example, SoftLab is put together with Michael Young. I mean, I think it, maybe it kind of makes sense because they, they both have fun attitudes to talk to, great drinkers, <laughs> but, uh, but their work are nothing alike. And I think, you know, to me, it was more so a diverse diet in some ways than, than like a genre defining selection process. Ken, did you have something to say? Yeah, Jimenez, when treaties got posted on the Arcanact, 
it provoked a, quite a reaction. You know, I loved it. I love looking at all of the, the future potential work coming out of that. Did you see any of that? And what was your intention around that that broadcast. I mean, I didn't. I didn't respond to any of it because I <laughs> <laughs> probably a, a as we hope you would wise choice. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go down that hole, no, I, I the troll hole. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I was. I, was, I mean, there are like two very quotable lines from uh, Big Lebowski. You know, that that's like your opinion, man. <laughs> second of all, you can say to to that individual, you, "You're not wrong. You're just an asshole." <laughs> well, I mean, the comments seemed to be extremely shallow. I mean, it, it was almost humorous because it was like it obviously involved very little investigation or understanding of what was being proposed. But yeah, it's uh... so it was jealousy. I, you've been using that word a lot, Jimenez, and so I'm going to jump on. It's um, it's jealousy. One of my real touchstones in um, critiquing other architects' work is an interview by Clay Shirky, the internet guy, where he talked about how we we tend to cut down the things that we did not do because we're just so jealous that we didn't do them. So we just find them full of fault. You know, we just, oh, that's just derivative. That's got, you know. So yeah, it's jealousy. You're doing something cool. You're getting recognized for it. And some people don't like that. Thanks. <laughs> I think people also are confused by any type of, you're talking about montage or mm. that has a narrative thread, but or any type of collage element. People want to think that there's an intent and it's easy to understand and it's all encompassing. So when they're shown something like the teaser that we posted where there were dead ends and then as you would click through, you'd be like, oh, here I am at the happy face. And, then, and I, it's fantastic. It's humorous. And people get angry because they can't understand why there isn't a, a point with, <laughs> written in bold with an underline underneath it. So I have to say, uh, we were inspired by another website, superbad.com. Mm -hmm. This website came out in 1997. And I, th I think, you know. Oh, yeah. It's still up. Yeah, Japanese. Oh, no. I think they're in San Francisco, but I can't be sure. Yeah, that remember. was one of the original yeah. web art. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so talk about a, a rabbit hole of, you know, nonsense. You just keep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I found out super bad back in, I think I was a little late in discovering it, but that would, that would have been 2000 or 2001. You guys also started in 1997. Yeah. 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 As old as super bad. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. As, uh, as we mentioned in our last podcast, we're almost an adult coming on 18 years. Yeah. Him and his two quick things before you go. One, you mentioned Stanley Tigerman a lot, and I think he's part of the Chicago Biennale. Is that correct? Or Well, the one that's coming up in October. Yeah. Coming up. Correct. Are you going to be part of that? And ha Or have you been asked? Only Sarah knows, and Joseph probably knows, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, jo Sarah and Joseph <laughs> definitely know, but I don't know. <laughs> okay. Damn. Well, I've been advocating for you. Do you know in another parallel universe whether you'll be in it? Yeah, there is a parallel universe that, that definitely happened. Okay, so I definitely. I, I, Maybe I, we're also I, in that universe. I, I, I take solos in that. And lastly, what are you reading right now and what are you listening to right now? Mm. Oh, nice. Wow. I mean, this could, you know. Because this is going to come up later in future podcasts. And we have this, you know, that music thread out there. Like, what are you listening to right now? And I, I want to get back to that. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Antonio, right? Now I'm 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 inclined to say something cool, but then I'm I'm also thinking I can't I can't really remember what I was listening to when I when I left the house. <laughs> Nothing uh, on the Uber driver stereo. Oh, that was really funny. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It was, you know, like the supermarket where like the kind of like elevator music rendition of Sinatra. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do we have an entire radio station devoted that to that in a in LA? Yeah, or is... uh, yeah Sirius Radio. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but um, I don't know. I no, I want. I do want to offer an answer because you know. So Peter Jan Hinkles introduced me to this band called uh, Konai Mokasin. Uh, it's a New Zealand. Do you know these guys? Mm-hmm. Really, really nice. I I like it a lot. We'll post a link or something to give people a listen, and they maybe we can, make, we can have an unofficial soundtrack for this episode. And who are you reading? Or what are you reading? What keeps you interested? Well, I'm really infatuated with uh, Neanderthals right now. I can't stop researching more and more about Neanderthals. And so I think that occupies a good portion of my days these days. I mean, we're finding out more and more that a lot of us, if not the majority of us, are partial, partially Neanderthals. And we're also finding out that the stone tools are actually very sophisticated. And we're also finding out that we homo sapiens may or may not be the first people to cave paint. So as we're finding out these things, I, I, I mean, especially the part about cave painting, you know, if I'm interested in cartoons, I would be interested in caricature making, uh, which is, in, you know, the political, political comment section of the newspaper, a part of journalism. And if we, if we do that, we, and we know that if we want to make fun of, you know, certain politicians, we only have very few lines to articulate that this is that person. And so, for example, Gorbachev, you know, we just have to make sure the birthmark is really, you know, pr- pronounced. Or President Obama, we just need to make sure that his ears are really big. And so it's kind of like, you know, extraction of existing quality, but spoken with hyperbole. So going back to cave paintings, you know, if we know that, no buffalo or bison or horses sat for a pose. They probably had to, you know, like draw this from memory. The, the recounts or the journalism is probably really in, inaccurate. Uh, but out of these kind of ina- inaccuracies, maybe, you know, new forms of abstractions could be, you know, arrived at. And we're re-entering the world of graphic communication. And so I'm interested in cave paintings. And these days, what am I reading? I guess I'm reading a lot about cave paintings and Neanderthals and communication. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. And one of the most popular diets right now is a caveman diet, mm-hmm. paleo diet. Right. Oh, stop. <laughs> stop. No, there's some really great stuff about the cave paintings and um, also the fact that a lot of them are done in places that are extremely hard to get to. They really were not intended for an audience. They were intended as a sort of trance or a kind mm-hmm. of meditation. Uh, there's some really good research on that coming up recently. Didn't they just discover the most well-preserved caveman just the other day? Really? I think it was over 5,000 years old. I heard about some new teeth. I heard about finding a new species of human teeth or something. Yeah, okay. I don't it's know. Siberia. Well, we'll have to look that up after. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so the treatise, is is it going to be published? Yes. Because uh, it's being promoted right now. I mean, we've been promoting it as, as the exhibition, which, yeah. is, which is going on right. until the 28th of March, right? Yes. The exhibition itself goes up to March 28th, but the book launch is on the 18th of March. And that is going to be held uh, at, at um, the Grand Foundation in Chicago. In Chicago, that's right. I think I also have to make acknowledgments to Pentagram. Natasha Jen of Pentagram, you know, generously designed the graphic. Of, oh, excellent! Of, wow, of treatise, which is you know amazing, and you know I think it's important that I make an acknowledgement in public. Yeah, well, that's uh, yeah. that's a nice partnership. Yeah. Um, so, book launch. March 18th, exhibition runs until the 28th mm-hmm. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Any, any kind of events planned in LA or New York or anywhere else for the, uh, for the launch of the book? That's a, that's a nice thought. Maybe yeah. we should call Eva. Yeah. Yeah. 
get the ball rolling. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of people who, you know, one gets jealous of, Ava is so cool. Have, yeah. have you met Ava Frank? I still haven't, no. But uh, she, from what I know of her, very cool. So maybe they can they can do something in New York. Maybe we can do something in LA. Maybe we can do something in LA. Yeah. Well, why don't we do that? Yeah. 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 Okay. So if in the proposal that I wrote for Treatise, there's a portion called Blurry Discourse. Uh, okay. Uh, which is related to inebriation. I'm not sure if we were still, <laughs> were we recording at the beginning when we were discussing that? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so we're going to have to have a, yeah, maybe, for maybe the, that could yeah. be the perfect opportunity. Yeah. Um, all we need is a space and obviously booze. And people, a lot of yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> and people, yes, and organic beings who can get intoxicated. <laughs> yeah, that would be a perfect opportunity. I'd love to experiment with it. Yeah. Very cool. Nice. Okay, Paul, we have to get this going now. <laughs> I, I'm getting very excited. I, I uh, yeah. Is your house That's... booked in like February? Does that work for you? <laughs> we can discuss this off mic as well. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to look at my house's schedule, but that sounds very exciting. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, Ubering all the way across LA. That's like halfway across the country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, Jimenez. Great right. to have you. Thank you for having me. So, Treatise book launch, eighteenth of March, and the exhibition is ongoing. Um, I believe it launched sometime last month, and it is going through March twenty eighth. If you're in Chicago, go check that out. Um, there's a lot of good work there with Jimenez as, um, and as many, as he mentioned, so many other contrib- collaborators and contributors. Yeah, really exciting lineup of designers and artists and architects to check out. All right. So moving on, wrapping up this show, any endorsements that you guys have this week? I was just going to say, I think this episode is interesting to me in part because of the very wide range of types of architectural practice we're seeing in the two guests that we have had on. Yeah. Kind of ends mm-hmm. of the spectrum kind absolutely, of. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the most cutting edge and young and doing crazy, awesome things that really look critically in one way at the profession. And then the sort of most stable and old school, you know, the, the old boys club of the AIA, which again, it changes if you join it and do your own volunteer work in it. But um, yeah, I love the very disparate, you know, architecture is a big field. It's a huge field. There are so many paths and ways to do the the things that we do and to apply your knowledge to. It's just, it's amazing. I, I, I love that. And the fact that both of our guests this week are entirely 100% relevant and important to this industry. You know, I think Absolutely. that's, that's mm-hmm. the great thing about architecture. I mean, it spans such a wide degree of... Uh, stuff a possibility <laughs> a possibility the only way to communicate how wide its birth is is just by using the most basic word stuff yeah. stuff yeah stuff yeah. it's big I like stuff well <laughs> this was my what i wanted to bring to the table as an endorsement this week was this news post that we put up for cern to have an architect in residence cern being the a uh, another acronym whose name i can't remember right now because it's not in the english version of cern but um, it basically is a month-long residency for an architect to work with a physicist or someone doing research, at an employee of CERN, and do research together, collaborate. There's an explicit mention of no product is expected at the end of this residency. So it's really just for mutual learning and understanding and imagination to go on, which sounds pretty insane and pretty remarkable. And the only downside is, is that you have to be an Austrian architect or an architect living in Austria to uh, be a part of it. Donna, I know. I I was was ready. (laughs) I was like firing up the laptop to start my application process. And then I realized, oh. I went through a a lot of internal turmoil as to where to put (laughs) that information in the article, like how far you would have to scroll down to view it because 
man, yeah. like I wanted to like suddenly become an architect, but also <laughs> they have CERN is, is really establishing this precedent for this incredibly wide berth of collaboration between people who identify as artists as well. They have a whole other program devoted to bringing artists of different flavors to do residencies at CERN. So this is a relatively new program where they have an, an explicit architect, but it just looks so cool. And that there's no expectation is really just an open-ended opportunity. So if you're in Austria and you listen to this podcast, that's awesome and want to hear from you, but also apply because this is probably, it just sounds like an amazing opportunity. That was my endorsement. I can't think of anything else I would rather endorse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a couple endorsements this week. One is about jobs. There are so many job opportunities out there. It's it's really crazy. I mean, I don't know if people have noticed, but just in the last week, Frank Gehry, Pay Cobb and Freed, Stephen Hall, Mad, SOM, Michael Graves, Big, Eric Owen Moss, Foster and Partners. Those are just a few of like literally the hundreds of amazing firms that have posted job opportunities. So I really recommend that people check out the job board if they're looking for work and, and get your architect profile up, up to snuff because a lot of these firms are checking out your profile to, uh, to vet applicants. So just a shout out. And also one other thing is the uh, bigger than a bread box, smaller than a building competition. The deadline is coming up in a few days, uh, February 15th to be exact. So if you're an architect or, or actually even if you're not an architect and if you, and if you've designed an installation in the past, you can enter this competition by basically revisiting the installation that you've designed in the past and kind of building upon that concept to propose a, an installation piece for the BSA lobby in Boston. So for more information about that competition, go to btabb.archonnect.com. And you can also listen to our episode 13, where we talked to Aaron Willette, one of the co-organizers of the, of the competition. So that's it from me. Anybody else? Yeah, I have one interesting one kind of funny. So I'm going to pimp my town because I don't think anybody <laughs> um, gets to Minnesota often enough to, uh, or Minneapolis to see how great it is, even in these fantastic winter climate um, that we're having this year. Um, there's an event going on on February 21st. It's called I Am Kindness. And essentially it's, a, it's an art auction. So a lot of Twin Cities talent are putting up for, uh, for auction their work. And in order to win, be the winning bid, you have to offer to uh, do a random act of kindness. You have to actually do some community service and you put your proposal in a bowl, buy that piece of art. And um, if your name gets drawn, you get the art you, after you perform the act of kindness. So um, I think it's a pretty interesting idea. And I've, I'm familiar with a lot of the, the people that are involved in the at least selling the, or at least the artists, I, I buy from them. I've seen their work. So that's, uh, that's kind of what's going on in Twin Cities. I was pretty psyched to see. Very cool. Yeah. That's so Midwestern. <laughs> yes. You, you're, yes. You're also kind. <laughs> you're witnessing the beginning of the kindness economy. Uh, yep, that's right. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Except they'll start thinking that architects should be doing the same thing. And then that just doesn't Ooh, work. yeah, don't, yeah. don't. I think we've given them a friend in kindness. <laughs> free services. The other one is this weekend is Valentine's Day. So get your 50 shades of gray bear and, uh, you know, treat your loved ones very kindly. <laughs> oh my God. Do they have a 50 shades of gray chocolate, uh, assorted chocolate box? 
Oh, oh I'm sure of- they do. I'm sure they do. <laughs> but hopefully some, it's yeah. not great chocolate. Though. <laughs> I, I don't remember where I saw this on Twitter, but some, I think it was some comedian on Twitter who prefaced, who had a new subtitle for the 50 shades of gray. It was 50 shades of gray. A dog watches a sunrise. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's how I prefer to understand it from this point on. Excellent. Excellent. Or sunset, whichever you feel is like more yes. uh, resonant to the dog. <laughs> Shall we end this episode? I think so. Yeah. Well, as always, send us your comments, suggestions, legal questions for Brian, who will be joining us again next week. He's been on a little bit of a hiatus. You can hit us up on Twitter, hashtag Arconnect Sessions. Send us an email, connect at arconnect.com. Give us a call on our voicemail hotline, 213-784-7421, with a message up to three minutes. We'll play it. If you leave one, you probably won't, because not too many people have. (laughs) (laughs) be the first and if you enjoy the podcast please uh consider rating us on itunes we really appreciate that we've had a lot of great reviews and actually our our feedback from last week's show was uh very supportive and really really good to to hear uh it seems like people have been truly enjoying the show and most of the feedback has indicated that they don't want us to change. So <laughs> we're perfect we're, just we're, the way we are. Yeah, and we swear it's right. not just our moms who are yeah. giving the feedback. <laughs> moms only accounted for like 30% of the feedback. So it's okay. <laughs> Things will change, of course, as we evolve, but you know, it's an it's a process and we're having fun so far. I think I am at least. You guys? Oh, totally. It's Second. a blast. Mm-hmm. Good. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to everybody for listening and thanks to uh, my co-hosts for, for doing this again. Anytime. It's great to do it. Talk to you guys next week. All right. Until next week. Okay. Next week. Bye. 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 Bye.